Well, hey, uh, <clears throat> glad to have you guys join us today from wherever you may be. And um, we as a church, we have been uh, in this new sermon series and the uh, letter to the Hebrews. And so we've kind of committed the next couple months as a church to look into uh, the letter to the Hebrews and, and dig deeper and to see, um, you know, what, what is it that God could be and, and may be saying to us as a church? And what is it that God may be saying to me even today? Uh, we just read Hebrews chapter 3, and I want you to, if you have your Bibles with you, or if you're able to, I want you to go get your Bibles and, and stay open to Hebrews chapter 3, especially verse 1 through 13. We're going to look at what God is saying to us today, what the author is trying to tell uh, and encourage this particular fellowship with um, in the first century. Oh, you guys probably know last week, if you tuned in, that the writer to the Hebrews, the author, is writing to a group of um, Christians who didn't grow up in the church and, and really didn't grow up in the Christian faith, unlike, you know, many of you guys who may be watching who did grow up in the church, who, you know, heard all the Bible stories and then came to faith. Um, this particular group were known as the, the Jewish Christians. They were drifting away in their uh, relationship to Christ and their uh, commitment to be faithful and to respond uh, faithfully uh, unto Him and and the reason is because they were facing a time in their life, in their society, in which the uh, Roman Empire had, had mass persecutions against Christians, against the Christian church. And so this caused them to be tested and uh, face some hardships and face suffering and persecution was in their backyard. And so they were te tempted and tested and they found themselves drifting away. And so their letter to the Hebrews is a way of encouraging them to continue in their, their faithful commitment to Christ. These particular Christians, though, um, because they grew up in their uh, Jewish faith and they grew up in a Jewish thought, that's all that they knew. And so this thing called Christianity and following Jesus was fairly new for them. Right, their family, their relatives, as they were kids and as they were growing up, all that they knew, all the practices, all the things that they probably uh, uh, understood about Scripture, about God and prayer, and all of this was probably wrapped around and centered upon their old Jewish thought and old Jewish worship. And for them, for this group to hear the gospel about a man named Jesus who was sent by God the Father and who lived and died and rose again, and he forgives us of our sins, and he gives eternal life for those who put their trust in him. For these people to hear that gospel, and then to receive that gospel, and then to stand up for that gospel, and to turn from their old Jewish practices and their ways, that they, that, that, which was all they knew, right? For them, this was a big deal, a big deal. It makes me think about my mom, who was the first believer in our uh, immediate family. My mom, though, in Korea, when she was growing up, she didn't grow up in a Christian home. She didn't grow up in the church, you know, and so everything was new to her when she came to the faith. In fact, my mom actually grew up in a Buddhist home. My, my grandmother, who uh, lived in Korea while we lived in the States, I remember every time we would go visit uh, my grandmother in Korea, and it would be like a week or two, my grandmother would take us to the temple. And I'm like... We're only here for like a week, Grandma. Isn't there anything better than the temple that you can take us to, right? And yet, for my grandma, you know, that, that Buddhist faith and religion, that practice was so important to her 
and that she imposed it even on her grandchildren, taking us to the temple. And so I just, I just imagine how much more of an influence that she must have had on my mom when my mom was growing up in her home. And yet, so I think about my mom who uh, grew up um, not in a Christian environment, not hearing about Jesus, not understanding the love of God, not hearing the gospel, not even having opportunities to respond to the gospel. This was my mom, and so she came to faith later in life, and it was um, when we were in the States, when she moved back to the States, and, you know, she had my brother and I, and uh, my mom was, you know, she was now mother of two. This was like in the uh, mid-early uh, 90s. And I, it just kind of dawned on me this past week that, that when my mom came to faith, she was around my age, like my age right now, which is quite amazing because I came to faith at age 16. And yet for my mom, she was already a mother of two, right? She was already in, into her adulthood. And she was at kind of around the age I am right now, which is 24, right? Plus 15, just pray for me. Um, but she came to faith later, and I just think about, man, when I saw her conversion, when I saw her leave something that she knew or thought she knew all her life to be true, to her, for her to leave that and follow Jesus, I saw how genuine that was. I saw how real that was. Uh, I, I saw how beautiful that was. And so I think about these Jewish Christians and how, you know, in a similar experience, they left everything that they knew. And so it was a, a big deal for them. And so it, it, makes me, it makes me really think about, man, as real as her conversion was, as real as these Jewish conver- uh, Christians has, had converted to Christ and following Jesus, as genuine as that was, and, and maybe in the beginning, as vibrant and fervent and passionate as that was, I think it's sobering today. It helps us and it awakens us like cold water on our face to realize that no matter how genuine or how passionate we once were or how genuine or how real the conversion experience was, nobody is exempt from drifting away, right? Nobody's excluded from that. These Jewish Christians were drifting away from the one whom they have placed they're trusting. And so the question that I ask, you know, is, is, is it good enough just to start well? Or is the Christian life not just about starting well and having an experience in the past? Or, uh, uh, or, or is it about a lifelong journey with God as we have a heavenly calling towards him? And so the question that I ask is, have we just started well? Or are we today confident enough to say that we're actually finishing well? And maybe the more relevant question is not so much are we finishing well, but are we continuing well? You know, where we are today as you maybe kind of start to examine your life and your heart and and, and where you may be with the Lord and your relationship with God, the question is, am I continuing well? Because nobody's exempt from drifting away. We all feel it at times. It could be through a crisis in your life. It could be through things that you see on the news and things that are happening in society. It, it could just be from just, just old habits and sin that keeps knocking at your door. We start to give in little by little, right? I think about um, when I was in junior high and uh, we, we had PE class, right? Physical education and 
And most of us would say that that's probably our favorite class, right? You don't have to read books. You don't have to study. Uh, I enjoyed PE uh, on most days, but on uh, Wednesdays, it was my least favorite class because on every Wednesday uh, in our PE class in junior high, we had to run the mile. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and uh, you know, it, 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 from elementary to junior high was a big leap. And they made you run the mile every single Wednesday. And so you had to dress up and you had to be ready. You had to be prepared and you knew it was coming. And everybody dreaded that Wednesday. And, um, and soon enough, like, you know, you know we, had to, we had to do it. And, and, and basically the, the PE teacher would, would kind of take count of, you know, making sure that you're part of that group, that you're running and, and making sure that you finish. And, um, and soon enough, like, you know, we realize that this is not easy. The mile, it's so long, right, to a junior high kid. And, and so the way, the way they would measure the mile is, is you would run four laps around the school kind of, um, you know, uh, field. And, and, and so four laps would equal one mile. And so a couple friends and I, we, we, we had this thought, you know, what if we were able to get a discount on that mile? Right? What if we were able to not do four, but somehow just do two, right, or, or three, and then, and then, but make it look like we finished all four? And because, this is because the mile was so um, painful at times for us. You know, you start off, and the first mile's okay. You're like, man, I, I could do this, no problem, right? And, uh, and then you start to hit mile two and then mile three, and you start to feel your legs giving in. You start to breathe. Your, your breathing is, you know, heavy, and, and you're trying to suck in as much air and oxygen as you can, and you start to feel your body give in. And so the temptation starts to sit, settle in with you and, you know, just, just take a break, you know, just stay, stay out one lap. And so our, my friends and I, we, we actually found this big tree in the shade where you can hide behind the tree while, you know, so this is kind of in our third lap, you, we would hide behind the tree while everybody else in the class would run that third mile. We would take a break. And then, and then when they come back around for their fourth mile, then we would jump back in and make it look like we were there the whole time. And we would do this like almost every Wednesday because we were so tempted to give in. And I think what the Hebrews are facing in their life, and I think many times what we face in our life is that same test, that same temptation to, to give in, to take the easy road, to take the road of comfort, just to find the shade. How, how can I cut corners? How can I make my life easier and less painful? How, how can I flee from this? How can I escape this while putting on the face that I'm doing okay, right? Eugene Peterson, um, he has this book, and, and he talks about this idea. It's this idea of, of this long obedience in the same direction. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. And I want to encourage you today, as you consider that's the, that's the journey, and that's the pilgrimage, that's the, that's the call of every Christian, that we are called to this long obedience, not to just start well, or not to just finish well at the, the latter part of our lives, but to continue well in the midst of in the middle of the start, and the, or between the start and the finish, that we would continue well and have this long obedience in the same direction. I was, I was reminded this past week of uh, when my wife and I got to go to Korea for our first son's adoption. And so this is a few years ago. And right across the street, kind of in a hidden area uh, from the adoption building, was this kind of uh, 
graveyard or cemetery, and um, we had heard about this particular place through uh, relatives of ours, and they said, you know, make sure you guys go visit that area. And, and I thought it was kind of weird because, like, why would someone recommend? You, you usually get recommendations for um, parks, theme parks, restaurants, shopping, you know, museums, and yet this is like someone saying you should go visit that, that cemetery and that graveyard. And when we went, we found out that it was um, a, a field, a, uh, a land, a graveyard dedicated to Christian missionaries in the 20th century. These missionaries who uh, gave their lives to come to Korea to share the gospel. And the gospel hasn't been around in Korea forever. It's the missionaries came to share that good news. And, and, and in the midst of that, God did an incredible work in Korea but as Steph and I were walking around, we would go around and, and uh, look at the tombstones of these names, some of, uh, many of which we've never heard. And it would just have these two numbers. One number is the year they were born, and the next number is the year they died. And in between those two numbers was a dash. And we would remember, realize when we were there that what was most important were not the numbers, but the most important thing about them was that dash. It was how they lived in between the years that God had given them. It was how they lived in their long obedience to Christ. And then you, they would have um, some inscriptions and a, 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 maybe some quotes or things that they would remember these particular missionaries by. And we would read one by one, and we couldn't even get to all of them. There are so many people who have dedicated their lives and in the midst of challenges, in the midst of coming to a place where they didn't know the language at first, I can't imagine the hardship that they must have been through, and yet they, they, they made such an impact that there was a land, and Korea is not a big country, they, 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 they uh, had reserved land to dedicate this particular part of Korea to those who had lived their long obedience to Christ, faithfully sharing the gospel, standing up for the gospel so that others can receive the gospel. And we walked away, I mean, um, just incredibly blessed, inspired, compelled, and motivated. And it's, it's not for us to follow man's, you know, ways, but it's, it's, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness to us. And this is what Eugene Peterson is calling us, and the author of, of Hebrews is calling us to consider, this long obedience in the same direction. And then the question for us today is this, you know, how do we know, though, if we're drifting, how do, how do I know? Because it's oftentimes so subtle and, and so unnoticed that, that we don't know that we've drifted until we've gone so far away and so hardened in our heart that it oftentimes takes so much more work to actually come back to the place we once were, right? So how do we know, like, if we're drifting? And, and how, how do I faithfully continue that long obedience in the same direction. What the author of Hebrew does and, um, is a few things here in Hebrews chapter 3. And I want to point out just four things. This is not the totality of it all, but just for the sake of time, I want to uh, highlight four things that I think the author does for those that, are, uh, which is all Christians, all believers in the faith who at times are tested and, and tempted and struggling in every way, right, to remind us of these four things so that we can catch ourselves when drifting, that we can respond faithfully to Christ, and we could have a long obedience in the same direction. Number one is this, the author of Hebrews um, 
wants us to remember who we are. The author of Hebrews writing to the fellowship uh, of the Hebrews, he's reminding them of who they are. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He reminds them of who they are, that you are holy. You are brothers. You are, are family. You have been made family. You have been made holy, and you don't have an earthly calling. You have a greater calling. You have a heavenly calling. He says, remember who you are. And every time he encourages us with something, um, there, there's a caution behind it. And it's the caution of uh, making sure that, that, th- that we don't drift uh, in that direction. So when we start to drift, one of the early signs of drifting is that we forget who we are. And we also forget uh, God's purposes for us. We forget who we are and God's purposes for us. See, when we are drifting, what happens is, is we may not say it out loud, but our earthly titles and our earthly positions become more important than our eternal position in Christ. And so what happens is, you know, and this is one of the signs that that we're drifting is, being who I am at work is more important than who God has declared me to be. So, so I, that's where my focus will be at work. Or, or it's more important for me to be a husband or a father, and those are even good things. But yet, when that becomes more important than the heavenly calling that God has given us, when that becomes more of, of what shapes our identity than who God has called us to be as holy brothers, then we know we're drifting. When, we, when, when the things of the world, when earthly titles and positions become more important than the eternal ones. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he says, you are holy. And what holy means, I, I know it just sounds like this religious word, and like what does that even mean? Holy just means that, that God has set us apart. That, and, and this is not because of our doing. This is not because we were so great or we have achieved anything so great. Uh, before God, but this is God's grace on our behalf. This is God taking our place in place of us. He has set us apart by God for His glory, for His purposes. He calls us the saved, the redeemed, the righteous, beloved. We are saints. We are ambassadors. We are representatives. We are messengers. We are salt and light. We are partakers of His kingdom. We are the ecclesia, the church. We are the ones who have been called out of the world to live in the world, but not of the world. We are the ones who have been called to drive out the kingdom of darkness and to usher in and bring in and pray for the kingdom of God. This is our identity, that we have been made holy. God has set us apart. He has set the ecclesia, the church, the fellowship throughout all of history, not to put all of our focus and our attention and our energy on earthly titles and earthly positions and earthly callings and things that we just want to achieve. The author of Hebrews is saying, you have a greater one. You have a better one. You have a better identity. Being a husband and a father is good. It's great. But you're also a son of the living God. You, you, you're holy. God's saying, James, you're ho- I've set you apart for such a time as this. And the author of Hebrews is just reminding them, the fellowship. I just want to remind you, church, 
that you have been made holy and set apart as a family for his purposes. And we share in that heavenly calling. The second thing he does is not just pointing us to remember uh, who we are, but to remember whose we are. He calls us to remember whose we are. He goes on after he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, he says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is not the world's confession. This is not everybody's confession. This is not uh, even the Jewish confession. This is the Christian confession. This is the believer's confession. This is the fellowship's confession. This is the holy brothers and sisters' confession. This is those who share in the heavenly calling. This is our confession that we consider Jesus and we see him, the apostle and high priest, right, of our confession consider Jesus so he's saying remember who you are you're holy you're set apart but he's also saying remember who Jesus is remember the one who has set you apart you know that English translation consider um, I think it kind of weakens the meaning it kind of loosens the meaning uh, but when you start to really understand what the original word means um, it, it's actually a lot stronger in the English word the, the word translation the, the word consider you know, it's kind of like um, something you do on your free time. You know, when you say something to, to someone you know, you know, have you considered this or have you considered that? It's, it just seems like something you do, like something you, you might get to, but it's not that urgent. It's not that important. It's definitely not something that you, you keep coming back to. It's just a suggestion. You know, but that's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That word consider is better translated. Go examine. Look closely and look attentively fix your thoughts on it's a continuous observation there's a sense of urgency there's a sense of seriousness and a sense of continuation to give your focus on considering on Jesus on who he is that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession and stay there and don't take your eyes off of him until you understand the weight and the gravity of that significance of who he is to us. He's the apostle and high priest. When you think about the apostle, it's just simply, you know, um, someone that represents God to man. Someone that is sent, an apostle, sent by God to represent God to man. But the high priest is a bit different. The high priest is one who represents man to God. Someone that who goes before God on behalf of man. And in our confession, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is both. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He not only is, is representing God to us, but he's also going to God on our behalf. That's good news. Right? He is sent by God to represent God to us. At the same time, the high priest who not only represents us to God, but gives of himself so that we can actually be reconciled to God. He says, consider Jesus. What he's saying is, remember who he is. Don't, don't take your eyes off of him. Don't take the easy road. Don't, be, don't fall into temptation. Don't give in to the test. Fix your eyes continuously on who Jesus is. For the Hebrews, um, they, were, they were tempted to go back to their old ways and, and, and what they knew and who they knew. 
And in the Jewish faith, Moses was, um, it, you know, was, was, was highly revered. He was highly respected. And so what the author does uh, in, in most of chapter 3 here is he, he goes back to the Old Testament and he draws imagery and uh, draws analogy from the life of Moses and the life of Israel uh, as they had left Egypt and they're in the wilderness uh, on their way to the promised land. And he draws from the Old Testament so that the, the, the fellowship in Hebrews can see the significance of who Jesus, of who they're following, really is. So there's this comparison that he does of Moses and Jesus. You know, for the Israelites, for the, for the Jews, like he, Moses was the man. Like he was the greatest. There's a passage in Exodus that says, you know, whenever Moses came out of the tent, people would stand and rise. I mean, they would basically drop what they're doing and say, Moses is here. And they would rise to their feet and they would stand and they would watch him until he left the tent. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that says that there has never been uh, a prophet like Moses in Israel in whom the Lord knew face to face because of all the signs and wonders that he did in Egypt. And yet the author of Hebrews is saying this, as great as Moses was, Jesus is greater. He says Jesus is greater. It says, he says uh, to, to the Hebrews that Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. See, Mo, he says Moses was faithful in God's house, but then he says Jesus was faithful over God's house. What he's saying is that Moses was just part of the building, but the builder was actually Jesus himself. He's saying, you guys re respect Moses so much, but you actually have a greater example of faithfulness, and his name is Jesus. And he says not only was Moses a faithful in God's house, but he says that Moses was faithful as a servant, but yet Jesus was faithful as a son. And he's saying, why are you guys going back to following an example of a servant when you have the example of the son of the living God? So he's saying, he's saying Moses is good, but Jesus is greater. And so get your eyes on Jesus and consider what he has done, and consider who he is, who he is. And there's this belief in the author that as they do so, it will compel them to a, to a lifelong, to, to live this long obedience in the same direction, right? The author is just reminding them of who they are, of who they belong to, He's reminding them that Jesus is the builder of the house, that he's reminding them that ultimately Jesus is building you, and ultimately Jesus is building us, and ultimately Jesus is the one who, because of his faithfulness, our faithfulness is actually possible. See, our faithfulness does not depend on our own determination. It doesn't depend on our strength and willpower. Our faithfulness actually rests in the faithfulness of God because he is we can continue, right, this long obedience in the same direction. The third thing that the author of Hebrews is saying as he goes on, as you read on, is he's, he's saying take care of your heart. Take care of your heart. And he, he explains this in verse 7 through 11. He talks about um, 
the Israelites in Egypt, and he basically is going back to a quote from Psalm chapter 95, this picture, right? He's giving them this picture of, he's saying, do you guys remember Psalm 95? It's Israel in the wilderness. And he's saying, do you guys remember how they lived and how they wandered? And he's saying, do you guys remember how they rebelled? And he's saying, do you guys remember that not many people made it to the promised land? Only two, Joshua and Caleb. And he's saying, Don't do what they did. He's saying, learn from their mistakes. Learn from history. He's saying, be careful. He's saying, watch out. Take care of your heart. And I know he's pointing to the heart because the word heart is repeated over and over. Verses 7 through 12. In verse 8, he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Right? And then in verse 12, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. And so he's getting to the heart. He's saying, remember who you are, remember who Jesus is, but also protect and guard and take care of your heart. Don't fall into rebellion. Don't don't go into self-dependence and self-reliance. Don't don't go into a place where you're just, um, you know, uh, drifting away and wandering. And what he's trying to say is, in much the same way the Israelites were on this journey to an earthly promised land called Canaan, we as Christians, too, are in exile. We, too, are in a, we're, we're in a pilgrimage. We're, we're in a journey. And it's not Canaan, but it's a heavenly promised land. And he's warning us. He's warning them. He's saying, continue, persevere, keep going, right, and fix your eyes on Jesus, keep fighting the good fight. Run the race to which you are called, right? That word in verse 12, uh, the, the phrase take care, is take care, brothers, lest there be an enemy of an unbelieving heart. He's talking about taking care of your heart. Take care of your heart. You know, we, we, we think take care is something we just say when, um, you know, when you wish someone well or you just, it's kind of a goodbye. Take care. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I wish you well. He's not saying goodbye. What he's saying is, take care of your heart, right? What he's saying is, be watchful. Be attentive. Look out. He's saying, pay attention to your heart. And he's saying, pay attention to what goes in your heart. And also watch what comes out of your heart through your your words and through your life, right? And what he's saying is, take care of your heart because sin is deceitful and sin is is destructive. Sin can lead you astray. And what, what he's trying to say is that even for the believer, you know, that, that for the believer, yes, we are free from the power of sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. God in his grace has done that we have made, been made holy. But yet, on this side of eternity, we're not free from the presence of sin. The presence of sin is still there. It still knocks on our door. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, take care of your heart and make sure that you're not falling into the way of sin. Because the way sin works is it has this incredible promise that if you just follow that, it will promise to deliver something you need and something you want. And yet it leads you on this path only to find out that the only thing waiting for you is pain. Sin only leads you to pain. It only delivers pain, right? Any NBA fans, right? It's like being a LA Clippers fan, right? 
when, when you're following the Clippers and you have all this promise, right? And all this promise because there's some superstars on the team. And so you follow every game. You're like, we're, we're going to the finals. We're going to win it all. This is the year, baby. We've waited years and years. We've waited, you know, however long for this. And, and you follow that team. And, and there's all this promise. There's all this hope only to go to the end and only to find out there's pain, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Lakers fan, so, so amen by myself. But that's how sin works. I'm reminded of when I was in when I was in the ninth grade. This is a true story. I was walking with my friend, um, you know, kind of towards lunch, and we were uh, coming out of class, and we we're walking towards the area where we kind of hang out for lunch. And my friend and I were walking together on the ground. We saw a five dollar bill, and for a ninth grader at that time, five dollars meant five thousand dollars. It it was a lot of money to me at that time. It still is, actually. And, and, I, and my friend and I, we both saw the $5 bill on the ground, and we both actually reached for it at the same time, hoping that no, you know, making sure no one else is trying to get it. And so we both reached for it at the same time, and the wind kind of blew it away, so we took another step forward, and we both reached for it at the same time, and the wind kind of blew it a little bit further. And then when I reached for it the third time, I noticed my friend stopped reaching. And he stopped reaching for a good reason. But I didn't know what the real reason was. And I reached for the $5 bill a third time. And as I reached for the third time, I'm thinking to myself, it's all mine now. My friend gave up. That $5 is mine. I'm going to do so much with it. I can get, I don't even know how many cheeseburgers at McDonald's, maybe five. But I, 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 I thought, this is all mine. And I got closer and closer to the ground. And as I got closer and closer to reaching and picking up that $5 bill, it moved one more time. And then it's when I noticed, and when I noticed it moved for the third or fourth time, I started to come back up and realize that it's not moving because of the wind. And as I came back up, I started to hear giggles and laughter around me. And what had happened was there, there was a group of people who had... Uh, 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 put a, a string attached to this $5 bill and wanted to see and just to pull a prank on whoever is willing to catch it. And I remember standing up so ashamed that for $5, I was willing to chase it <laughs> till the very end. And I remember that story because that's how sin works. It knocks on your door. And it pulls you in till the very end, but it only produces pain. The last thing he says is encourage one another, exhort one another, right? He's saying encourage one another, exhort one another. And what he's saying is this, when he's saying do it every day, he's not saying do it as a checklist, you know, like when you wake up, make sure that's one thing you do. What he's talking about is in the fellowship of the believers, make sure there's an environment an atmosphere of encouragement, that it's the air that we breathe. And you think about that, and you think about, man, there's, there are people, right, that suck the, the, the air out of the room. You know what I mean? They, they're like, man, like, man, why is there so much negativity, right? But then there's also people that when you're around them, you just, you're just full of hope. You feel blessed. You feel like, man, Jesus is so much more beautiful than I thought. And you walk away saying, man, God is good. And he's talking about that kind of encouragement, that in the face of suffering, to have an atmosphere 
of encouragement. And we do this with our words. I believe this, and, I, and I'm going to end soon. I believe this, that every, every Christian, every brother and sister, right, that we, with our words, have the ability to either withdraw or deposit into someone else's life. Sometimes it's, you know, with, with our words, when we're just, um, when we withdraw, it's, it's when we, man, have nothing really good to say. We're always negative. We're always just, you know, sucking the life out of other people. And when you're around them, you're just like, man, not again, right? And there's gossip and there's slander and it's just draining. And that's, we just continue to withdraw. But I think what he's saying here in Hebrews is that you don't have to be that fellowship. You don't even have to be that person. You can be the kind that makes deposits into people's life. That when they walk away from interacting with you, they feel encouraged in the faith. They feel like, man, I, man God is worth following. And God is worth our lives. And I just want to say this, that the encouragement that the author is calling us to do is not the kind in which a cheerleader does for a, a sports team. Not, not like you can do it or you can be faithful. It's not what he's saying. The kind of encouragement he's talking about is one in which we remind one another of the faithfulness and goodness of Jesus that compels us to respond faithfully to him. It's the environment in which we declare his goodness. We declare his faithfulness. It's kind of what we do when we praise collectively and corporately. There's a declaration, there's an atmosphere of encouragement that draws our attention to not our faithfulness, but his faithfulness. And because of his faithfulness, we leave the room encouraged to be more faithful. And he's saying that's what we ought to do in the fellowship. A quote from Eugene Peterson, he says, Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less to our own. Finding the meaning of our lives, not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes. Making a map of the faithfulness of God, not charting the rise and fall of our enthusiasm. It is out of a such reality that we acquire perseverance. And he goes on, he says, perseverance is not the result of our determination it's the result of God's faithfulness and so that's the good news not that ultimately faithfulness completely and wholly depends on us but that we can be faithful because Jesus is the builder of the house and he who holds us he is faithful that's the good news that ultimately the perseverance of the saints is not that we held on to God, but rather that God actually held on to us. And it's in that reality, church, I want to encourage you to walk by faith and to have a long obedience in the same direction. Would you pray with me?